Welcome to the September 24th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will learn more about the role of hepcidin in fetal iron homeostasis, review a new study with improved outcomes in HLA antigen mismatched transplantation, and examine how two splicing factor mutations can coexist in the same cell in patients with myeloid malignancies. Our first topic is a study entitled Fetal Liver Hepcidin Secures Iron Stores in Utero by Lara Kammerer, Goran Mohammed, Magda Wolna, Peter Robbins, and Samira Lakal-Littleton from the University of Oxford in the UK. Iron is essential for growth and development. Suboptimal iron availability at birth is associated with cognitive, behavioral, and motor skill deficits, as well as an increased risk of anemia in infancy. To support placental and fetal growth in normal human pregnancy, there is a significant increase in demand for iron in the mother, including the developing fetal erythron, as well as the additional iron needed for expanding maternal erythropoiesis. The net effect of that need is an approximately tenfold increase in iron demand from 0.8 mg a day in the first trimester to 7.5 mg a day in the third trimester. In the second and third trimesters, the maternal iron homeostatic system responds to this challenge by gradually decreasing the production of the maternal liver-derived hormone hepcidin, or HAMP, resulting in very low maternal circulating hepcidin concentrations. These low hepcidin concentrations allow greatly increased intestinal iron absorption, as well as increased mobilization of iron from maternal stores. In mice and humans, the syncytiotrophoblast functionally separates the maternal from the fetal milieu. Iron uptake on the maternal side is mediated by the transferrin receptor TFR1, and the iron is then exported to the fetal vasculature through ferroportin, the sole known cellular iron exporter and molecular target of hepcidin. Hepcidin regulates iron export through ferroportin by inducing its endocytosis and lysosomal proteolysis. Since placental ferroportin is localized on the fetal-facing side of the syncytiotrophoblast, only fetal hepcidin has direct access to it. Although HAMP is also expressed in the fetal liver, its role in controlling fetal iron stores is not well understood. To address this question in a manner that limited the confounding effects of altered maternal iron homeostasis, the authors generated fetuses harboring a paternally inherited ubiquitous knock-in of a HAMP-resistant ferroportin gene, which has intact iron export function, but which is resistant to HAMP-mediated degradation. Additionally, to minimize the confounding effects of altered placental iron homeostasis, they also generated fetuses with a liver-specific knock-in of the same mutated ferroportin gene, or a knockout of the HAMP gene. First, the investigators found that the fetal liver iron concentration and fetal HAMP mRNA expression increased in the third trimester, and that there was a positive correlation between these two indices. Using mice with the knock-in of the HAMP-resistant ferroportin, they found the fetuses had reduced liver iron stores and transient anemia and increased ferroportin in the liver, but such changes were not found in the placenta. For example, 
Placental iron concentration, placental expression of iron-regulated transcripts transferrin receptor 1 and divalent metal transporter, as well as the concentration of iron in fetal serum, were similar between mice heterozygous for the HAMP-resistant ferroportin and their wild-type littermates. These data confirm that fetal liver, but not placental ferroportin, is subject to regulation by fetal liver-derived HAMP. Overall, the study's findings indicate that fetal liver HAMP operates in a cell-autonomous manner to facilitate the buildup of fetal liver iron stores to support fetal erythropoiesis. The findings that fetal liver HAMP expression is significantly lower than that of maternal liver HAMP and that loss of fetal liver HAMP does not affect extrahepatic iron levels are consistent with an autocrine and or paracrine effect of hepcidin secreted by fetal hepatocytes and acting on ferroportin in the same cells to prevent export of iron into the fetal circulation. Importantly, fetal liver hepcidin has no apparent physiological role in regulating iron transfer from the mother to the fetus across the placenta. However, as Tom Gans from the University of California, Los Angeles points out in his accompanying commentary, this report, along with other recent data, indicate that during maternal iron deficiency, the fetus is not treated preferentially and may also become iron deficient. The placenta, on the other hand, appears to be protected in part because it requires iron from mitochondria to maintain the energy required for nutrient and waste transport. He reminds us that the lack of effective fetal compensation for maternal iron deficiency during pregnancy may explain why maternal iron deficiency remains an important global health problem with long-term health consequences for children. Our next topic today is a study entitled Sirolimus with Cyclosporin and Mycophenolate Mofetil as GVHD Prophylaxis for Allogeneic Transplantation with HLA Antigen Mismatch Donors by Brian Kornblit and Brenda Sandmeyer from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and U.S. colleagues. With the development of non-myeloablative regimens, Allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT, with related and unrelated donors has become a viable treatment option for older or medically unfit patients with hematological malignancies. A fully human leukocyte antigen, or HLA, matched donor is considered ideal for the best possible outcome after allogeneic HCT. However, depending on the recipient's ethnicity, Fully HLA-matched donors can be identified for only 16% to 75% of patients. There are many patients who undergo transplantation from donors who are mismatched on one or more HLA antigens. Historically, these transplants are fraught with much higher and often prohibitive rates of complications. Kornblit and colleagues conducted a multicenter phase 2 trial of non-myeloablative allogeneic HCT in 77 patients using a conditioning regimen of fludarabine and total body irradiation with HLA mismatched donors. The range of HLA mismatched donors was expanded to include recipients of both HLA class 1 or class 2 antigen mismatched donors with or without additional HLA allele level mismatches. 
The trial was designed to both improve acute GVHD prevention and improve survival after allogeneic non-myeloablative conditioning, HCT, by adding the mammalian target of rapamycin or mTOR inhibitor sirolimus to the standard of cyclosporin and mycophenolate mofetil. The participating institutions conducting these HLA mismatched donor transplants had historical data showing that 69% of such patients had grade 2 or greater acute GVHD and a non-relapse mortality of 47% at 2 years. In the current study, the cumulative incidence of grade 2 to 4 acute GVHD at day 100 was 36%, which met the trial's primary endpoint. The cumulative incidences of non-relapse mortality, relapse or progression, and overall survival were respectively 18%, 30%, and 62% after four years. No differences were observed between class 1 and 2 mismatches for these three endpoints. The cumulative incidence of grade 3 or 4 non-hematopoietic adverse events by day 100 after transplant was 29%. The most common grade 4 adverse event was infection or neutropenic fever. Two patients experienced a grade 5 fatal event due to pneumonia and multi-organ failure due to sepsis. One patient experienced transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy. No patients developed grade 3 or 4 hypertriglyceridemia or veno-occlusive disease of the liver. Compared to a prior Phase 1-2 trial by this group in HLA Class 1 mismatched recipients using cyclosporin and mycophenolate mofetil only, the current study demonstrated lower non-relapse mortality related to lower rates of acute GVHD. Because this was not accompanied by an increased incidence of relapse or progression, these data translate into improved progression-free and overall survival. While the immunomodulatory effects of sirolimus may overcome some of the deleterious consequences of HLA mismatching, the four-year incidence of chronic GVHD was still high at 57%, similar to the prior trial. Therefore, strategies to reduce the risk of chronic GVHD remain a challenge in HLA mismatched recipients. In summary, the current trial shows that addition of sirolimus to GVHD prophylaxis with cyclosporin and mycophenolate mofetil in HLA class 1 or 2 mismatched donor transplants after nonmyeloablative conditioning is safe and capable of reducing acute GVHD and non-relapse mortality without increasing the risk of relapse or progression in older or infirm patients. In his accompanying commentary, Everett Meyer from Stanford University School of Medicine reminds us that while HLA mismatch transplants are often framed as an option of last resort, the current work may allow a rethinking of this perception, especially as there is a significant improvement in the likelihood of finding donors for anyone. Our last topic is a study entitled Single-cell genomics reveals the genetic and molecular bases for escape from mutation epistasis in myeloid neoplasms, conducted by Justin Taylor and Omar Abdel Wahab from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and colleagues. Mutations in genes involved in pre-mRNA splicing are common in patients with myeloid malignancies, including myelodysplastic syndromes, acute myeloid leukemia, and myeloproliferative neoplasms. Intriguingly, 
Although RNA splicing factor mutations occur in up to 45 to 85 percent of myeloid neoplasms, they consistently occur in a heterozygous state and mutually exclusive manner, such that it is rare to identify more than one RNA splicing factor mutation in an individual patient. Since the discovery of these mutations, sequencing data from thousands of patients with myeloid neoplasms have reaffirmed mutual exclusivity of these mutations. Epistasis refers to the phenomenon in which the effect of a gene mutation is dependent on the presence or absence of mutations in one or more other genes. Efforts to identify the functional basis for epistasis of mutations in RNA splicing factors have shown that co-expression of the most common hotspot mutations in SF3B1 and SRSF2 in vivo in mice is intolerable to hemopoietic cells. Despite these observations, several studies have noted rare patients with concurrent mutations in two RNA splicing factors in the same sample. However, information regarding the corresponding allelic frequencies of these mutations are often absent, precluding evaluation of whether both mutations are expressed within the same cell or not. Additionally, mutations in splicing factors may occur at multiple residues within the gene with potential distinct impacts on splicing. For these reasons, evaluation of known pathogenic mutant alleles, where variant allele frequencies are available, is required to clarify whether mutations in RNA splicing factors can actually coexist. Single-cell genomic sequencing now provides an opportunity to definitively assess these mutations in the same cells. The authors performed bulk and single-cell analyses of myeloid malignancy patients harboring greater than or equal to two splicing factor mutations to understand the frequency and basis for the coexistence of these mutations. Although mutations in splicing factors were strongly mutually exclusive across over 4,200 patients, 0.85% harbored two concomitant splicing factor mutations, of which approximately 50% were present in the same individual cells. Interestingly, SF3B1K700 and SRSF2P95 or P96 mutations, which represent the most frequent mutant alleles among splicing factors in myeloid malignancies, were significantly less common in double mutants compared to single mutants, indicating selection against cells with co-occurrence of these two mutations. In contrast, selection was observed for less common alleles, such as SF3B1 non-K700E mutations, rare amino acid substitutions at SRSF2P95, and combined U2AF1S34 and Q157 mutations. Taylor and colleagues subsequently performed single-cell DNA sequencing of bone marrow cells from 11 patients that harbored two splicing factor mutations. The data confirmed the mutual exclusivity of SF3B1K700E and SRSF2P95 mutations at the single-cell level and demonstrated the potential for co-occurrence of other rare splicing factor mutant alleles. Also, Single-cell DNA sequencing analysis showed that when both U2AF1S34 and U2AF1Q157 mutations were present in the same cells, they co-occurred in cis with preservation of the wild-type allele. This finding corroborated a previous study demonstrating that the expression of the wild-type U2AF1 allele 
is required for survival of cells harboring a U2AF1 mutation. Functional analyses showed that proteins encoded by the less common SF3B1 and SRSF2 mutant alleles that are enriched in double mutant cells exhibit reduced effects on RNA splicing or binding affinity compared to the most common alleles. This suggests that the less common mutant alleles may escape from epistasis due to more modest effects on RNA binding and or splicing. In sum, these data support the conclusion that mutual exclusivity or co-occurrence of splicing factor mutations is allele-specific rather than gene-specific. As noted in the accompanying commentary by Andrea Pelagati and Jacqueline Boltwood from the University of Oxford, the study has important clinical and therapeutic implications. For example, each splicing factor gene mutation may have a potentially different impact on the clinical features and or survival of patients with myeloid malignancies. Also, given that the more common SF3B1 and SRSF2 mutations exhibit more pronounced effects on pre-mRNA splicing and RNA binding affinity than less common splicing factor mutant alleles, Patients with SF3B1 K700E or SRSF2 P95 mutations may be more susceptible to treatment with splicing modulators. These issues need to be more fully considered in clinical trials involving drugs that target the spliceosome. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.